Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season seven, episode two, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you, all while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today we'll be discussing the 2003 French psychological slasher High Tension, aka Switchblade Romance. It was directed by Alexander Aja, as well as written by him, along with art director Gregory Lavasseur. The film stars Cécile de France, Mai Wen, and Philippe Neon. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Are you still here? Okay, cool. Then let's get this morning started. All right, so High Tension is considered a major player in the new French extremity movement. And for those of you who are unaware of what that term means, to sum it up, and we'll explain more later, new French extremity films consist of early 2000 French horror films filled with extreme violence, as well as some type of like body horror with a pinch of exploitation. Writer-director Alexandra Aja, along with the other directors producing during the movement, were inspired by American horror films such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and The Hills Have Eyes. In fact, the chase at the end of High Tension with the giant circular saw is a direct tribute to The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, while the glass in Alex's foot is a tribute to The Hills Have Eyes. So, according to Aja in his commentary for the film, the French title, Oot Tension, (laughs) I just want to make sure I say that right, translates both to high tension and high voltage. Aja and co-writer Gregory Lavasseur considered other English titles, including Switchblade Romance, which was eventually used for the UK release. They settled on high tension since they felt it described the film as well as the feel of the film perfectly. Although the film takes place in France, they actually filmed high tension in Romania. It was actually very difficult to find a farmhouse there since many of Romania's old homes were destroyed due to the country's communist past. Uh, They eventually had to settle for an old mill and turn it into a farmhouse by hiding some of the machinery with like couches and pictures and other furniture stuff. Nice. (laughs) Yes. And the only studio filming done were the scenes between Marie and Alex inside the killer's truck. And it wasn't even really a studio, it was just sort of a garage. Hmm. The appearance of the killer is a loose interpretation of a real French serial killer, Emile Louise, who was a French bus driver and the prime suspect in the disappearance of seven young women. Aja actually consulted with a real coroner regarding the details surrounding blood spray and other gore. So if you want to complain about the gore in this film, talk to your local coroner about it because apparently the film's gore is extremely realistic. 
According to Beth Kettleman, quote, the film features special effects by Giannetto Di Rossi, who was also responsible for the makeup effects in Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, David Lynch's Dune, and several films by Lucio Fulci. High Tension was released in France in June on June 18th, 2003, and shown at the Toronto International Film Festival during the Midnight Madness section that same year. In her book, Films of the New French Extremity, Alexandra West explains that High Tension did so well at the film festival that many other New French Extremity films were shown there years afterwards, including Frontiers, Inside, and the infamous Martyrs. According to the High Tension Wikipedia page, some scenes were edited for the American version to achieve an R rating by the MPAA. About one minute of the film was cut in order to avoid an NC-17 rating. When High Tension hit the States in 2005, critics destroyed it, including Roger Ebert, who gave it a one star, calling it brutish and filled with plot holes. (laughs) I don't know. He's not wrong, but... Wow. (laughs) Pretty accurate, but... (laughs) (laughs) But listen, we'll talk a lot about that in a minute, but um, other critics called it sick too clever for its own good, a slap in the face, and a major disappointment. Well. Yes. (laughs) However, High Tension is revered among horror fans as a twisted cult slasher that dares to take its gore and its plot to the next level. With that said, Abby, would you please remind us all of the plot? Sure. Best friends Alex and Marie come home to Alex's parents' house on a break from school. Having been friends for a while now, Alex wants to introduce Marie to her parents and little brother, so they take a road trip back through the French countryside and arrive at the old farmhouse late in the evening. As the family settles in for bed, they are attacked by a deranged man prowling the countryside in his old truck looking for his next victims, and he slaughters everyone in the house except Alex and Marie. Marie tries to think quickly in order to survive the ordeal, running around the house trying to find a phone while doing her best to avoid the deranged killer, but their fate seems grim as the man puts Alex in chains and kidnaps her, placing her in the back of his truck. Unbeknownst to him, Marie had stowed away in the back in an attempt to get Alex out of the truck. The killer stops at a gas station, and while getting gas, Marie escapes into the store and tells the attendant to call the police. She hides when the killer enters the store and murders the attendant. The killer drives off, and Marie tries to call the police for help, but she doesn't know her location. Marie steals the dead attendant's car and pursues the killer herself, trying fervently to save Alex, but she loses them in the woods. The killer catches on to Marie's stalking, and after an intense car chase, Marie wrecks her car and attempts to fight the killer in hand-to-hand combat. After he almost chokes her to death, she bashes him over the head and suffocates him until he passes out. She makes it back to the killer's truck, where Alex is still in chains, and frees her, but Alex screams at her to get away. It is then revealed to the audience that Marie has been the killer all along. Apparently, she had taken on the persona of the deranged man and slaughtered Alex's family in an attempt to have Alex all to herself. It is also revealed that Marie had been romantically infatuated with Alex the entire time. Alex flees through the woods and tries to hitch a ride back to safety with a man driving down the road, only to be pursued by the now chainsaw-wielding Marie. The man is killed and Marie closes in on Alex, but Alex stabs her right when Marie tries to kiss her. 
The film closes with Marie in handcuffs in what is presumably a mental institution as Alex looks at her through the one-way glass that separates them. Ooh, thank you, Abby, for that wonderful plot summary. Ooh, you're welcome. (laughs) So let's mention the Bechdel test. Uh, Yes, it passes, even though... Yes, even though there are a lot of conversations about boys, there's also a few conversations about school and the trip to Alex's house. Let's uh, take a look at Nancy's dream team test. Is the supporting cast at least 50% women? No, it's not. Out of the eight characters in this film, there are only three female characters. Wow. Did a woman write, direct, or produce the film? No. Was the final girl or main character a person of color? No. And were there any openly LGBT plus characters in this film? Yes, but as always in horror, there is some problems with that. Yes. We're going to talk about that at the end of the show. Okay, so let's get into our discussion. New French Extremity, France, and the early 2000s and high tension. According to Alexandra West, podcaster of Faculty of Horror and the author of Films of the New French Extremity, quote, While France has always had a history of graphic depictions of violence, there seemed to be something affronting about this new set of films. The new identity of France was a confused one. While Paris was still an international center for culture, the mid-90s saw multiple terrorist attacks on the city by Islamic terrorists. In 1995, the armed Islamic group launched five separate attacks on the Paris metro in an effort to bring the fear and violence of the Algerian civil war to France. Into the new millennium, politics were at the heart of civil unrest, while president after president claimed to have the solution for unemployment in France, little progress was made. The civil unrest came to a head in 2005 and 2007 with with widespread riots, which resulted in France declaring a state of emergency. While many reasons have been attributed to the start of the riots, they brought to light the vast differences in wealth, culture, and political ideology within the country. For a nation that fought to overthrow kings and queens, new unrest was brewing within, unquote. Basically, hearing all of this from Alex really shows us that there is a logical reason why France was suddenly producing a string of violent horror movies during this period of time. Like, it wasn't an accident or, like, a weird trend. Like, this was, like, this was something that, like, was really happening. And it was sort of a way for people to kind of express themselves. And as we've mentioned on the show before, and as most of you listening should already know, Horror has always been a safe way to comment on the frail structures of our society. And none of this is new, but as someone who was born and raised in the U.S., it's really great to see what was happening outside of this bubble that I'm in, that we are both in, because Americans have a bad habit of living in a bubble. Yes. (laughs) So Alex West goes on to say, quote, what we see in the new French extremity movement is the filmmakers taking on the mantle of the slasher film in all of its forms and resembling it to reflect the troubling changes in the notion of the self that have become prevalent in the last two decades. The protagonist is deeply troubled in some way. And when an outside force attacks, the audience's sympathies lie with our hero. 
When the attacking element is revealed to be part of the protagonist's mental and physical state, the audience member's loyalties may not have been misguided, but they have been purposefully misdirected. The films of New French Extremity expose the audience's expectations of the genre, and by subverting them, create a new bleak reality where there are no true heroes or villains, only an uncertain future, unquote. Here's the real kicker. Much like France, High Tension has an identity crisis. <laughs> yeah. Aja has stated in the commentary for the film that he and his co-writer believe that High Tension is a romance film. <laughs> now, there are a lot of concerns I have with that statement, but if you think about it, Paris was so badly like wanted to maintain its image as the city of love while also dealing with its internal turmoil. Like High Tension's insane plot and knee-jerk twist it me- immediately makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, I feel that identity crisis on a deep level, honestly. <laughs> like... The narrative doesn't make a lot of sense in regards to Marie's probable mental disorders, and it can be a little bit hard to follow, especially without more of a backstory of Marie's life. But I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute. Yeah, so this film, as well as other new French extremity films, subvert our expectations on what a it like on what is a slasher film, really. Carol J. Clover uh, has stated that the final girl, who is usually a bit more masculine in looks and in lifestyle than her friends, takes control and is able to destroy the killer and restore balance to her community. Here in High Tension, our final girl is also our killer. And not only that, but she never comes to realize what she has done wrong. So balance is not restored in high tension. And like Alex West states in her essay, the future is uncertain. So let's talk a little bit more about the unreliable narrator in high tension. So there are a lot of technical problems with this twist. Because we see Marie, like, hiding in closets and under beds from the killer, as well as stealing, like, the gas station attendant's car in order to follow the killer, even though Marie is the killer and she, like, could have never stolen his car because she was too busy (laughs) driving the truck that the killer drives. And, like, Alex is in the back of the truck, so, like, we know that the truck exists, so, like, where did this other car come from? Also, where did Marie get that beat-up truck in the first place? Like, ugh. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. Also, 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 if Marie is the killer, then what was that scene with the killer filleting himself with the disembodied head? Um, dude, I because know. Because <laughs> did that happen in real life? Like, what? Like, with the use of an unreliable narrator, we can easily see past these plot hiccups, though. Because according to Professor Beth Kettleman in her essay Expressing the Mind of a Serial Killer, the unreliable narrator in Alexandra Asia, Aja's high tension. Oh my gosh, I'm like so excited. I'm getting out of breath. Huh. I know. <laughs> she says, quote, this technique sets up the ontological shifts in and out of reality and allows for the narrative to contain illogicalities and inconsistencies and outright contradictions as it introduces the possibility that parts of the story might be misremembered, covered up, left out, or even purposefully changed, unquote. And Cattleman also argues that High Tension isn't the first film to have minor plot holes due to the protagonist being an unreliable narrator. And she suggests that films like 
the usual suspects and the sixth sense and fight club and even the cabinet of dr caligari like they are like this like cattleman goes on to say that like out of all of these films that i just mentioned caligari is probably the closest to the plot of high tension due to its use of the fragmented like psyche in its protagonist and she says quote with caligari however audience members seem to have a much easier time accepting the twist than they do in high tension because caligari for grounds the subjectivity of the narrative through its use of expressionistically distorted sets and severe makeup designs. Throughout the entire film, the visual distortion reminds the audience that they are not watching a realistic story unfold." Unlike other films that Kettleman observes, though, like High Tension gives us no clever clues that Marie is the killer all along. Like, there is nothing for us as audience members to look back and say, ah, yes, that's why that was there. And that's why she says that. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah. Like even in Fight Club, we get weird glimpses of what is to come like way before the ending of the film. It has a rewatchability power that high tension doesn't. And I think this is why the majority of audiences feel cheated after watching High Tension. And I and I will say this, I actually knew the ending to the film before I even saw it because it was spoiled for me a few years ago. Oh, that kind of yeah. sucks. <laughs> well, yeah. But listen, as I started watching the movie, I thought, oh, I must have been wrong about this spoiler because there is like another killer in this. I and mean, Marie seems to be the hero. Like, I don't, I'm not catching any clues that she's not the hero. And then the ending happened and I was like, Jiminy Crickets, I was right. (laughs) It was spoiled for me. Yes. (laughs) But I didn't think it was because I was watching this film and I thought, oh, there's no way she is also the killer. So like I was still fooled even though I knew the ending going into it. Yes. Yeah. And like arguably like the only blatant clue to Marie's madness is at the very beginning of the film where we see her feet dangling off the bed in the asylum. But um. We don't, like, technically know it's her, and we're, we're not sure, like, what's going on in that scene anyway, so, yeah. Right, like, it could just be her in a hospital setting, like, not, like, an asylum. It could just be her, like, sitting on a hospital bed because she's been hurt or something like that. So, I think I would actually disagree with this not being rewatchable because... I mean, on second viewing, you could argue that you now realize that Alex's fear is not of the killer, but of Marie. It makes more sense why she is crying loudly while Marie is trying to keep her hushed and save her. And like when the killer murders Alex's mother, the mother asks, but why? Because she is confused on why Alex's good friend is murdering her. And at the beginning of the film, Marie says that she has just woken up from a dream in which she is chasing herself. Mm, That's true. But to also go back to what you were saying, so much is open-ended about this film. And I guess what bothers me the most about it is that we can't really, like, pinpoint why Marie is the way that she is. Like, the twist is cool, I guess, but the logical part of my brain takes over and, like, wants answers because I feel like her character is a cop-out, kind of. In an article for um, Scriptophobic called The Misuse of Dissociative Identity Disorder and Demonization of Homosexuality in High Tension by Alyssa Miller, she says, quote, It is later revealed that there is no trucker at all and the crimes are being committed by Marie, and it is implied that these murders are motivated by her DID and her love for Alex. 
Um, according to the DSM-5, DID is commonly explained as the presence of two or more distinct personality states. Obviously, Alex exhibits this symptom. However, she does not exhibit any other symptoms of DID. Like, she does not exhibit any amnesia, loss of time, or lack of sense of self. The film starts with the two girls heading to Alex's parents' house, and then the violence begins, the twist is thrown in, and there's the ending. There is no backstory for any of these characters, especially Marie. DID is not a disorder that appears out of nowhere. While there are some genetic factors to be considered, it is a defense mechanism used by the brain to protect the patient from memories of serious trauma. The girls could have had a conversation in the car about Marie's personal life, even hinting at past trouble or abuse, and it would at least provide some sympathy for her character and an open door for mental illness to play a part in this film. Mental health issues are rarely genetic and almost all stem from something. As a writer, an explanation for the actions of the characters is key to integrating mental illness as a legitimate motive. Another factor to take into consideration is that DID is not usually the biggest problem that the patient has. It indicates the severity of other illnesses they are suffering from. If the patient has an intense form, an intense form of an eating disorder, PTSD, substance abuse, or uh, borderline personality disorder, that shows how deep that particular illness runs. DID is used by the brain to protect the patient from themselves, and they usually exhibit other illnesses, hence why their brain is trying to protect them in the first place. Marie exhibits no symptoms of any other mental illness. DID is used as a cop-out for a poorly written character. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's that's pretty interesting. Let's um let's actually look at like other clues that present themselves to us and this kind of actually goes with our next topic. I love this quote from Laura Miner in her essay High Tension Rethinking Female Sexuality and Subjectivity Through Violence. She says, quote, Aja's ending has received strong negative criticism for its twist, but the purpose of this ending is not to is not merely shock. Of course, if we read it through a conservative lens, then Marie's transgressions serve to maintain and perpetuate heterosexist discourse. As the lesbian protagonist is revealed to be the monster, she is the outsider who has destroyed the nuclear family. And then indeed, according to Harry M. Benshoff, quote, both movie monsters and homosexuals have existed chiefly in shadowy closets. And when they do emerge from these prescribed places into the sunlit world, they cause panic and fear. Their closets uphold and reinforce binaries of gender and sexuality that structure Western thought. To create a broad analogy, monster is to normality as homosexual is to heterosexual. Yeah, so Minor continues saying, quote, Although the monster is a manifestation of Marie's latent desires, he also personifies the fear and anger she feels about her own sexuality. This is implied at the beginning of the film through dialogue and lighting. When Marie and Alex arrive at the farmhouse, Alex tells Marie she'll, quote, end up an old maid, unquote, because of her lack of interest in men. Understandably, Marie reacts with dejection. Her face is deliberately shadowed by the darkness outside as she solemnly says, quote, 
don't start with that, unquote. Indeed, though subtle, it is obvious that Alex's ingrained societal beliefs have affected her deeply. The feeling that she is an outcast and she should settle down and find like a nice husband. And to have her best friend and love interest speak in such a way does not excuse murder, of course, that much is obvious, <laughs> but it could explain why Marie constructs an individual that represents heteronormativity, a white, heterosexual, middle-aged man committing these violent acts instead, unquote. You know, <laughs> it's really cool to see, like, LGBT plus characters in horror, uh, but I absolutely think that this character does a disservice to the community. I mean, it's clear that Marie has a personality disorder coupled with psychopathy, and it just perpetuates, like, the toxic representations of gay people. So, in that same article that I mentioned earlier by Alyssa Miller, she says about the film, quote, I understand that homosexuality was considered a racier topic when this film was made in 2003, but that doesn't give the film the excuse to use it as a motive. Yeah, no. There is no other implication of anything gone awry with Marie besides the fact that she is homosexual. An audience can see that and demonize homosexuality because they associate it with a person going off the deep end and murdering people. Crimes of passion occur when there is a sense of uncontrollable rage. Marie is not angry when it comes to Alex. She is sad. She listens to Alex discuss her romps with various men, but she does not appear to blame Alex for the way she feels. When she witnesses Alex showering and goes to her room to masturbate, she is not aggressive or forceful towards Alex. She leaves her alone. There is no obvious trigger to the switch Marie makes between her primary personality and her violent personality besides her homosexual feelings towards her friend. The trucker appears right as Marie is reaching climax during masturbation, implying that the violence begins because of her inappropriate sexual feelings. At the end of the film, Marie sets Alex free and tells her everything will be okay, confesses her love for Alex, and forces a kiss onto her. Alex stabs Marie with a crowbar, and Marie continues to repeat, I'll never let anyone come between us. This particular line implies that Marie committed the murders knowingly, which does not follow the DID narrative of having the unknown trucker alter ego, and also insinuates that she committed the murders so Alex would have no one left. Unquote. Oh, yeah. And that's not surprising because many LGBT plus critics of the film find it highly offensive, Abby. Well, yeah. <laughs> In a review for High Tension from the blog Queer Review, the unknown author states, quote, The reason why Marie turns into a killer in the first place is because of her sexual attraction to Alex. Thus, Marie's descent into madness and subsequent murder spree are intractably linked to her sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. In other words, the twist manages to be both ableist and homophobic at the same time. Unquote. Yikes. Yikes is right. Um, Mary Beth McAndrews feels the same way. She says in her article, Villainizing Queerness in Alexandra Aja's High Tension, quote, it is even possible to pinpoint the moment when this mental separation happens after Marie, like you said, Abby, orgasms while masturbating to fall asleep. 
As she begins to masturbate, the camera cuts from her face to an old truck driving down the road, holding our quote-unquote killer. While she masturbates, the truck gets closer and closer, and as she orgasms, the truck arrives at the front of the house, and in this moment, sexual pleasure is equated with death, creating a problematic association between the two that makes lesbian desire something evil, predatory, and destructive, unquote. Gross. In my opinion, high tension is a great example of how not to have representation in a modern day horror film. Agree. Yeah. (laughs) Like that ending really leaves a bad taste in my mouth, truly. And like we've said before that there can be great representation with the use of monstrosity and horror. I don't know. I feel like there was no sense of sensitivity in this film. Yeah. And I really, truly think that it comes with the knee-jerk ending. Like, we are rooting for Marie throughout the entire film, and when it's revealed that she's the killer, we're disgusted by her. And instead of handling it gracefully, she metaphorically stabs her in the stomach and never wants to see her again. Wow, yeah. And granted, I'm not looking at this film literally because you you just can't. It will make your head spin. But figuratively, whether intentional or not... Like, that's what I feel like the message is in this film. Yeah. Marie destroys the dollhouse that Alex grew up in. And she, again, destroys the heteronormative husband, wife, girl, child, and boy child image so that she and Alex can be together. However, there is obviously a part of her that feels badly about this because she manifests a gross old man to do the dirty deed for her in her mind. So, yeah. And I mean... To me, Marie has a lot of internalized misogyny. I mean, she calls Alex a slut and she's uncomfortable with her sexuality unless it's coupled with violence and she's controlling. And these are all wildly inaccurate portrayals of lesbian women. Like not saying that they don't exist because, you know, obviously, but uh, it's... uh, But to have it in media, to have it in film... Especially during this time, yeah, when 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 things were high intention, quote unquote, <laughs> you know what I mean? Oh my god, <laughs> like it's damaging. No, yeah, it it absolutely is. Listen, to rebuttal this, writer Stacy Ponder would actually disagree with us. She says, quote, in a sense, however, this true ending, which finds Marie vanquishing the horrible man and admitting her love for Alex, is undeniably pro-gay. The lesbian is actually the hero of the story. On High Tension's most basic level, we're rooting for Marie the entire time as she displays remarkable bravery and resilience in her quest to save her friend thematically she's still the hero of the story even at the end once marie basically came out of the closet and admitted everything the man was gone unquote so once marie kisses alex the killer never returns making it seem like marie is finally at peace because she has come out of the closet in this moment Eh. i don't know i have a hard time buying that um Listeners, especially our lesbian and LGBT plus listeners, please let us know what you think about this ending or about the film in general, especially like the representation. Um, Is this film pro-gay? Is it homophobic? Is it like a weird mix of both? Like we would love your opinions on this matter. So yeah, please let us know. Okay, so let's get into our final thought. The monstrous femme 
in high tension. Ooh. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So according to Laura Minor, quote, before the killer's death, he wields his chainsaw in an attempt to kill Alex, only for this weapon to be replaced by Marie's sweet and soft kiss. The act of female violence and gentleness in this scene unifies the binaries of masculinity and femininity and therefore complicates complicates the definitions of monstrousness and gender. For this reason, as Joshua Cohen has argued, high tension, quote, possesses somewhat of a problem for the critic interested in allocating monstrosity into a neatly defined category such as masculine or feminine. Rather, high tension requires a spectator whom assumes that gender is the subject that transcends the limitations of binary oppositions, unquote. And Minor continues saying, quote, It is certainly clear that the narrative does not advocate male or female genocide as a strategy for achieving women's emancipation. If anything, the film seeks to place itself in between the rich, textured spaces of female subjectivity and identity, spaces that are not always straightforward, rational, or prototypical, unquote. Yeah, that's a really interesting way to look at it, as there is really no black and white. Like, we all have such different backgrounds and upbringings and environmental and familiar familial factors that shape who we are and contribute to like possible personality disorders along how we identify as humans this film does a great job at bending those norms but i still think that there's a lot of toxicity in it as well yes i think it's trying again whether intentional or not To say that nobody wins, and no matter what our upbringing, none of us are free from pain and violence. (laughs) Yeah. But um, I think because of the film's glaring problems, it's really hard, for me at least, to see past that. Yeah. And to kind of change the subject, I want to go back to that chainsaw because it's not an everyday Texas Chainsaw Massacre saw. It's not phallic. Interestingly, it's Yannick. It's circular. So this is a really crazy representation of female monstrosity. Like to use our vaginas to cause others harm. Like it's like the vagina dentata, if you will. Yeah. And when Alex says she loves Marie, the saw is turned off. Like that cycle is stopped in its tracks. And the circular saw could be a representation of Marie's vicious and destructive cycle because she cannot find love where she's looking for it. I mean, like, all of these troubles start when Marie masturbates by herself. And out of that loneliness comes a monstrous man who sexually assaults women. When Marie demands an answer from Alex and Alex says what she wants to hear... She penetrates Marie with a knife directly afterwards. Like, both women are forcing something on each other that neither of them wants, really. Like, the knife is like a penis and the saw is like a vagina. Their sexuality becomes weaponized. Oh, absolutely. Alex forces her heteronormal ideas of sex literally into Marie's body with the phallic knife. Like, she forces Marie to become penetrated by the thing that she doesn't desire, which is a phallic symbol. And 
Rebecca Willoughby argues that the very essence of Marie's capabilities, like feminism and sexuality, mark her as dangerous women in this film, as a dangerous woman in this film. And she says, quote, alas, Marie's close cropped hair, healthy attitude toward masturbation and ingenious strategies are now corrupted since it's clear that the filmmakers intended for her to be the villain. Not just a violent woman, but a woman who so deeply represses her desires that they literally manifest themselves as an ugly, dirty, stocky man in mechanics overalls, unquote. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, this film can serve as an example of what can happen when you suppress your true self. It's also an ode to the shadow self gone wrong, because Marie is... She like she's out of touch with that part of herself and it runs absolutely wild. Oof. Oof is right. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, Abby, thank you so much. That was wonderful. Yes, and you guys, thank you. like again, like uh, guys, again, please let us know like what you think of this film. We would love to hear your input because it's better than ours. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you know, like we don't fully understand. So um, if you are part of the LGBT plus community, like, please let us know your input. Because even if you like if you are a lesbian, like your your interpretation of this film is going to be different from another lesbian's interpretation. Like, it's not all going to be the same. So yeah, if you guys could all just like comment on our social media, or you can email us at goodmorningnancy at gmail.com. Like, I would just love to hear everyone's point of view of this film because this film, like you said, is just absolutely wild. <laughs> it is. It's so good, but it's also like, oof. It's a it's a really, really good conversation starter. Absolutely. Like, this is why this film is taught in, like, gender and horror classes because it's insane. It, it has an insane plot twist and it has, it, it, like you said, like, it's a conversation starter. So let us know, guys. Yes. All right. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Good Morning Nancy. Don't forget to check out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com merch and click the shirt icon to be taken to our shop. And if you're not already a patron, go to patreon.com goodmorningnancy for some sweet extra content in your coffee. We upload full-length episodes early, give away patron gifts, and review horror trailers, TV shows, and new movies over there too sometimes. So, become a patron, won't you? Yeah, you can also help support the show by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. You can also help us out by telling a friend and spreading the word about our show. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.